Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Ted Hughes Society podcast. I'm Katherine Robinson, and it's my pleasure to introduce this episode. I'm a PhD student at Pembroke College, where I'm writing about Ted Hughes and early Welsh literature. I'm also the bibliographer for the Ted Hughes Society. This episode explores the Hughes archival collections at Pembroke College, Ted Hughes's Cambridge College, including a treasure trove of recent archival acquisitions now accessible to researchers and fans for the very first time. We'll hear from Lizzie Enyan-Smith, the Pembroke College archivist, who has welcomed and curated all of these new arrivals. She'll give us an account of Pembroke College's various Ted Hughes-related archival collections and the challenges and pleasures of cataloging them. We'll also hear from Mark Wormald, fellow at Pembroke College and chair of the Ted Hughes Society. Mark is an award-winning poet and has published numerous articles about Ted Hughes and other 20th century writers in leading literary journals and leading fishing journals. Most recently, he is the author of The Catch, Fishing for Ted Hughes, which just won Classic Angling's annual book of the year judging. Mark has been fishing himself since the age of four, and you'll see why that's important, indispensable even, to the story of some of these acquisitions. It is extraordinary to have all these materials at Pembroke College where they are accessible to researchers and fans more generally. And it's also a testament to the devotion and generosity of many people. As a Pembroke PhD student, I'm delighted about these acquisitions. And I also think it's really fitting that Pembroke College has acquired these varied and inspiring collections. In Hughes' studies, Perhaps the most famous story about Ted Hughes's time at Pembroke is Hughes's account of his dream of the burnt fox. He had stayed up late in his Pembroke room trying to write an English essay. In the small hours, he fell asleep at his desk. He dreamed that a creature, half fox, half man, with bleeding charred paws walked down the steps into his room. It placed its bleeding paw on his essay and said, Stop this. You are destroying us. In his telling of the story, that dream prompted Hughes to switch from studying English to studying archaeology and anthropology. Sometimes this story is taken to suggest that he did not find much inspiration in college literary studies, at least not in college essays. But if we dig a little deeper, a far more complex and engaging story emerges about Hughes's time as an undergraduate. I, for example, interviewed one of Ted Hughes's closest Cambridge friends, Daniel Hughes, who told me how many hours Hughes spent reading folklore stories in the open stacks of the university library, how he recounted those stories from memory to his friends, His Pembroke College library borrowing records, still at the college, also show he was discovering and reading poets there at Pembroke who came to have a career-spanning influence on his poetic imagination. 
For example, Daniel Hughes remembers that Hughes was especially enthusiastic about animal stories and animal poems in a book called Specimens of Bushman Folklore that he found in the UL. And looking at Hughes's Pembroke College library borrowing records, I noticed that Hughes read Golding's translation of Ovid in a book he borrowed from the Pembroke College library, borrowed twice, actually. And Hughes, of course, went on to write his own translation of Ovid, Tales from Ovid, which won the Whitbread Award. He discovered modern poets, too, who shaped his own craft. Daniel Hughes told me that Hughes discovered and was enchanted by the poetry of modern Welsh poet R.S. Thomas while at university, and he shared that poetry with Daniel. There's also a fascinating manuscript in the university library. It's a piece of creative writing Ted Hughes did for the English Tripos. It's titled, quote, The Ear Witness Account of a Poetry Reading in Throttle College Before the Small Poets Grew Up into Infinitesimal Critics. There's some ambivalence inherent in that name, Throttle College. But Hughes scholar Yvonne Reddick has written about that manuscript and how it holds the seeds of later poetic preoccupations. And it does. Many of the seeds of Hughes's poetic career took root during his time at Pembroke College. In these Cambridge libraries, he found folklore about creaturely life, and he found new poetry, discovered an imaginative world that wasn't at all charred or damaged, but that was vibrant, invigorating. I think it is exciting for researchers to be able to enjoy and learn from this archival material in a place that was itself an inspiring and generative part of Hughes's poetic development and imaginative life. So I hadn't really planned to become um, an archivist when I was younger. I have to confess that I actually dropped history um, as a subject before I even started my GCSEs, because at that time in my school, the syllabus was the Second World War, and I really didn't want to study that. So I ended up taking the alternate route, which in those days was geography. And I really enjoyed geography um, and in fact went on to do it at university because everyone said to me, oh, you should just do a subject you enjoy and geography was my thing so I did my geography degree and I did really enjoy my geography degree it was nice and varied I did a bit of physical geography a bit of human geography um, and I think actually that served me well in my subsequent career but when I finished my degree um, in that way of what are you going to do when you finish people said to me traditionally geographers become teachers or accountants And I was like, oh, do they? Well, my mum was a teacher and I was like, oh, I don't want to do anything that my mum did um, in a typical kind of 21 year old who's not going to do anything their parents did. And to this day, numbers are not my forte. So I knew I couldn't become an accountant. So I ended up just applying for lots of different roles, admin positions, library positions, archive positions. And actually, I was very fortunate that I was offered a position as a trainee archivist at Churchill College in Cambridge. And it's from that route that I became an archivist. Although I didn't take history at GCSE, history was all around me at home. My dad was an older parent and he had actually fought in the Second World War, which is possibly why I didn't see studying the Second World War as proper history. I always think of history as like the Tudors. 
And so we had a lot of historical material at home. He had in his office kind of pictures from his time in the war and scrapbooks and diaries. So actually, I've always been surrounded by archives. Um, he was also a solicitor. So we had the kind of parchment documents and things like that, that today I'm like, oh, these are very important archival documents. But actually, they were just all around me through my childhood. Um, and perhaps maybe I was just destined to be an archivist. Churchill College is a relatively big archive. Um, so I was really fortunate to start my career in a kind of big professional archive where there were lots of kind of archivists to talk to and learn from. The papers they have there are, they are stunning. They've got the papers of Sir Winston Churchill himself, along with those of Margaret Thatcher and people like Rosalind Franklin and Frank Whittle. So it was a great place to start. And as a trainee, I was responsible for supervising the search room. They had a lot of researchers, as you can imagine. And also I was answering inquiries that were coming in. So kind of usual tasks for a trainee. Um, additionally, they were working on a project when I was there to microfilm the Churchill Papers. So you can tell um, it was a while ago. Today, it's all about digitization. But I worked on that project and really sort of saw how a big team can function to get a large project completed like that. So that gave me a really good introduction to archival work. And then the natural thing from that was to go away and do a master's in archives and records management. And I did that at UCL, which I really enjoyed usually described as more of a vocational master's. So it's a bit more practical than a kind of straightforward master's. And it introduced all the practical elements of being an archivist, looking at some of the theory around cataloguing and provenance. And we also got to go and see lots of different archives around London. So looking at the different setups that we have. And it's nice. I had a really good group of people doing my course and I'm still in touch with a couple of them, which is great when you just kind of want to mull over or maybe an archive catalogue problem or kind of just an issue that you're grappling with. It's nice to know that you've got other archivists around. Although actually I would say that the archive community in Cambridge is really friendly um, and there's lots of people who are always available for a chat or particularly in the Cambridge colleges, someone may well have come across the issue that you're struggling with. So archives are kind of very supportive. I think we're quite a small profession. So lots of people know lots of people. So it's nice. After I'd finished at UCL, um, I took a job just for a year to cover maternity leave at Peterborough City Council, which was a real contrast to life at Churchill. It's a public service archive, very focused on public service. And it was then quite a new service. The archive had been set up once Peterborough had become a unitary authority. So they were just building up their archive service. And I was fortunate to oversee the completion of their archive store, which was based in Peterborough Central Library. And we were also just trying to grow the service, which was still in its infancy back then. Um, as I said, it was only a year's position. And when that time finished, I was fortunate that I was able to come back to Cambridge and into the college network and it's been based it's been where I've been based ever since after I came back to Cambridge, my first position was as assistant archivist and records manager at King's College, a lovely big college. It's a bit larger than average um, and it has more than one archivist, which is quite rare for the colleges. It's also got a long history of collecting material. It's got 
amazing personal papers collections. It's probably the only archive I'll ever work in where they have painted cupboard doors as pieces of art on the search room wall. They've got lots of material relating to the Bloomsbury group and they've got Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant material. So that's where the doors come from. Um, And they were always a good talking point in the reading room, which is great. It was a good introduction to learning how a college archive functions. A lot of the Cambridge colleges have a kind of dual purpose archive in that they collect the papers of the college. So the kind of business administration of how the college has been run over time. And that's often supplemented by personal papers collections. That was certainly the case at King's. As I said, they've got all the Bloomsbury group people, people like Maynard Keynes, so economists as well, E.M. Forster. Um, So it was a lovely place to work. They had a lot of researchers coming in. So it was a busy archive and a really good introduction to the college system. I've now got family, so leaving Cambridge is a bit tricky. So my next steps have kept me in Cambridge. And because although all the colleges almost have an archivist now, often it's only a part-time position, often there's only one archivist. So in fact, the kind of there isn't much of a career ladder, everything's very flat. So my moves have tended to be just to another college to experience more collections or different collections or a different setup. So after I had been at King's for a couple of years, I was able to secure two positions to make a full-time job um, at St. Catharines and Girton Colleges. So it was a nice contrast to King's. In particular, my role at Girton was quite different because I was actually the records manager there. So we were looking at how to manage much more modern records and how to ensure that they ended up in the archive at the right time. I was also looking after their sort of information rights legislation management. So looking at how colleges deal with freedom of information and things like that. And that contrasted really nicely with the the role at St. Catharines, where I was back in the traditional looking at college documents. Um, I started doing four days at Girton and one day at St. Catharines and eventually was able to balance that out and was doing three days at St. Catharines where I was developing exhibitions for alumni events. So being able to show the archives to alumni and also to proactively collect predominantly material for the college archive. So filling in gaps where we didn't have a complete run of sports photographs, for example, or making sure that it got full sets of minutes for all the committees. They had had um, a series of kind of interested fellows working at St. Catharines and I was there a bit more consistently and able to kind of be a point of contact for people. But also I was at St. Catharines during the anniversary of the First World War and I was doing quite a lot of research into how the college was functioning during the First World War and we actually discovered which was completely unknown to all the current college members that one of the um, houses that the college now owns that houses part of its second year undergraduate population had been used as a Red Cross hospital during the First World War, which nobody had really realised. And it was just a chance discovery in a newspaper article that led to a whole series of research. And that was really interesting 
it's very rare, unfortunately, as an archivist to be able to do really detailed research. You're there to facilitate other people's research. So it was great to be able to spend that time at St. Catherine's really delving into the history of this particular building and learning all sorts of amazing stories of the people that had been there. My move to Pembroke was rather accidental. I hadn't been looking to leave St. Catherine's, but when I saw the job advert and it was an opportunity to start from scratch, they were looking to employ their first professional archivist and the lure of having a blank canvas was too great to turn down. So I mean, I'm completely admit that I'm standing on the shoulders of my predecessors. As with many Cambridge colleges, there's been interested fellows who have worked on the archive over time. And prior to me, the college was very fortunate to have a volunteer archivist who had library qualifications, so they knew what they were doing. But you know, none of the catalogues were created to the standards that we expect today. So it has been great to put my own stamp on everything. I've introduced a new archive management system, which is part of a wider Cambridge project. So we haven't got any legacy data. So everything that's gone into that has been new. And it's really just been building up the profile of Pembroke and letting everyone know the materials that we have. The college archive, you know, is phenomenal. The college was founded in 1347. So we have material dating from that period and even before. So it's a fantastic run of historical documents. And that's complemented beautifully by all the personal papers collections, mainly people who were students of Pembroke, but also those with sort of inadvertent connections. So we've got perhaps most notably on the kind of writers and poets side of things, Thomas Gray, but also small collections from Wilkie Collins and the poet David Jones, and also um, Humphrey Jennings, the filmmaker. So it's been great to have that. At St. Catherine's, I didn't have any personal papers collections. So having experienced them at Churchill and King's, it's nice to be back working with that type of material. Unfortunately, you know, the COVID pandemic slowed everybody's work. There was a limited amount of things that I could do at home. But now we're back in the office, full steam ahead with um, working on everything. And I have here a dedicated research space for researchers to come and visit, which I didn't have at St. Catherine's. And it's lovely. I really enjoy seeing people working with the collections. I like to be able to help them and to hear about the things that they're working on. You know, some people that come in know exactly what they want to see. They look at it and they go away again. But it's nice to be able to interact with people and just hear about what they're doing. And, you know, sometimes if people are doing house history research or family history research, and it's just a little bit trickier, it's nice to be able to support them in that work. So we have three principal collections relating to Ted Hughes. The one that's had the most publicity recently is clearly the Barry Cook material, which we were very fortunate to receive. And that's been a fantastic collection to work on. We've also got a collection that the college has sort of built up itself over time, which is very disparate and it isn't a very logical collection. And then we've also got a collection that we were given by Olwyn Hughes, which I would describe as ephemera. It's all her newspaper cuttings relating to all the Hughes material that was published. So, you know, every time there was a book review, she would cut it out of the newspaper. So the Olwyn Hughes material was actually very straightforward to catalogue. 
we've arranged it by the publication that it relates to, because that seems the most logical way for a researcher to use the collection. With the Ted Hughes collection that the college has created, the original order is completely non-existent because even in the four years that I have been here, I'll get a newspaper cutting that arrives in the internal mail and then maybe someone might drop me off a book that's been written or a pamphlet or an article or someone will be like, oh, I was tidying up and I found this photograph of Ted Hughes in the college. And so there isn't really a kind of coherent idea of original order in that a sort of archivist would usually understand. So for that collection, I have just tried to catalogue it in what I hope um, is the most logical way for a researcher to access it. So we've divided it up into printed publications, material that genuinely dates from his time at Pembroke, and then some of the original article, um, original material that the college has either been donated or been fortunate enough to be able to purchase. And that's been split into correspondence and poetry. So again, we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. And I don't think there's any notion of original order there. When we come on to the Barry Cook collection, that's slightly different. There are a couple of issues around the original order in that I know Mark Wormald has spoken extensively about how he found the material in a box behind Barry's sofa. So one wonders what level of original order was still in existence. It's challenging to know how much detail to give in your catalogues when you can see it in situ. So, you know, it might be in a filing cabinet in folders or it might be in box folders. There is a notion of original order. But I think Barry Cook had moved house several times when Mark found the material. He was in sheltered housing and it was just in a box. And you get the feeling that with all the moves, it had probably just been put in the box in a way of packing up a house and moving on. So again, I think probably the notion of original order had been lost. And also it had gone through the family and evaluation. So they weren't concerned with original order. So again, we've tried there to very much focus on making it as easy for researchers to use as possible. So there are sort of four key people within the collection. There's Ted Hughes, Seamus Heaney, John Montague and Jean Valentine, and they each have their own section because there is so much material relating to each of them. And then there's a big section of correspondence, which is just listed alphabetically by the sender when there's only perhaps one or maybe two letters relating to those people. So I very much wanted to make the collections as easy to use as possible. There are, particularly with the um, Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney sections, there's a lot of poetry pieces that were sent from them to Barry Cook. And Mark, who is just a 
encyclopedic knowledge of all things Ted Hughes is like oh yes and look on line three of this particular poem he's using a different word to the published version and I haven't gone to that level of detail in the catalogue I am not a Ted Hughes or a Seamus Heaney expert and I just feel that giving that level of detail would probably invite mistakes and also when I'm feeling a bit rebellious I'm like well researchers should do something themselves I don't want to spoon feed it to everything so you know they need to come and look at the drafts of the poetry and then they can put their own interpretation on it rather than me just putting everything out there and we always try in our catalogues to give as much information about how we've catalogued things and why we've catalogued things and how material has come to us as an organization so it is a challenge and there aren't hard and fast rules about how you must catalogue things. There are standards in terms of how much detail and what information you should give in terms of kind of quantity and dates and the medium of the material. But in terms of how you arrange things, it is often up to the individual archivist as to how they want to do things. I mean, the Pembroke collections are big and I've got a lot more cataloguing to do. I mean, I love that I don't have to do the same thing day in, day out. I can do something completely different. So once we'd got all the Hughes material, we're beginning to welcome more and more researchers to come and look at it. And it's great because they're giving me more information. We had a researcher come in and she was able to identify some handwriting on a letter and we could then put that in the catalogue. So I think particularly with the Barry Cook um, and the college's um, Hughes collection, we'll still be updating things and it will prob- that will probably be a never ending collection. But it's been nice to kind of feel that that's done as much as it can be at the moment. And then I'm continuing to work on the college's own archive. We're adding more detail to the catalogue. We're adding more material, particularly with the Hughes material. It's such a varied archive and I do really enjoy that. It's often people think, oh, an archive, it's a text document. You know, it might be handwritten, it might be typed, but it's always a text-based document. But We've now, particularly with the Barry Cook archive, got um, got artwork, we've got records, we've got photographs, we've got cassettes, we've got all sorts of things. And that's really good. And that's also the case with the college archive. We've now got oars, we've got blazers, photographs, tankards. I've even got a few bones, not human, I hasten to add. And I think all the kind of things come together to make a really interesting archive. And I want to get as many of our collections listed and catalogued and accessible online as possible. My PhD was on late 19th century fiction in the shadow of Darwin, and it was called very cornerly The Origin of Speeches, (laughs) um, Expressions of the Self in 19th Century Fiction. So that's how I started, but I also, um, from Oxford days... I had edited at Oxford, Oxford Poetry Magazine, and I had um, written poetry myself and I reviewed contemporary poetry and fiction for the TLS. So I've had a kind of long-standing interest in contemporary writing. And so I've, I've written about Salman Rushdie and Jeanette Winterson and Sarah Waters, 
but not Hughes as it happened. But I'd, I'd really got interested in Hughes in a serious way uh, when I visited um, on a family holiday, Emory University in Atlanta, just for a morning and read the letters that Ted had written to Gerald from his time in Pembroke. Um, and there was a letter that I read which described his nightly regime of falling asleep, getting up at two in the morning, prancing about, painting red and green leopards over the ceilings of his, the, and the walls of his room, which interested me, not least because I was senior tutor at Pembroke at the time and not a necessarily a practice that I would advocate for other students. But I, on my return to Pembroke, got a, pen, a paint specialist in, scraped away the paint on the wall to see if those red and green leopards were still there. And they weren't. They'd replastered the wall. I had not been to, but a colleague of mine, Colin and Wilcoxon, had attended a conference at Emory on Hughes in 2006. They then wanted the next in the series of International Hughes Conference to be in Cambridge. And we were asked at Pembroke whether we'd host it. And essentially, because I was the uh, mo most modern in terms of coverage of the English Fellows, I was asked to be on the organising committee. In the year that I visited, um, I think the year before I visited Emory, and the reason why I had visited Emory was that in the year 2000, we had our library extended. We were commissioning some stained glass windows and we wanted a window devoted to Pembroke's literary cultural heritage. And I was asked to select some poems to feature in those windows. And so we had chosen Ted Hughes. And so I went through and found the Thought Fox that morning, fern, a march calf, horses, to uh, feature in those windows, which they did. And that was a treat. And I loved Hughes when I read him then. And I had that glimpse of his life here as an undergraduate. The next stage in all of this was hosting the conference in 2010. And then at the conference itself, which, of course, um, many fine scholars attended, including Keith Sagar, I was really moved when I took Keith into E1, A and B, now a divided set, which was the set where Ted had painted red and green leopards all over the wall. And Keith got very excited as we went into the bedroom um, and said, there at the desk by the window, there is the desk at which Ted was sitting when the burned fox entered the room. And there is where the burned fox leapt out of the window. And his excitement at being in the presence, as he imagined, uh, of uh, in the place where he, Ted, had, had had the burned fox dream, and Jonathan Bates' excitement at seeing this apparently holy of holies um, was infectious. In his plenary lecture, Jonathan's observation that the amount of material by then available to Hughes scholars in the archive, both at Emory and then because it had been recently opened to the public to, um, uh, at the British Library, was in a way a bit of a problem. There was so much material. But he said, fortunately, not all of it is um, relevant to the literary biographer. For instance, there are his fishing diaries. And didn't say anything more, passed on. But there was that implication that they couldn't possibly have real relevance to 
to the literary biographer. But I had always fished, so I thought I would go and have a look. And that's how I really got, got into the, the start of the journey that led to the catch. Though Hughes had been invited back in 1986 to receive an honorary degree and had come to Pembroke, we had not really, as a college, been very curious about him or had done much in the way of collection. Um, Keith Sagar had, I think, offered us and we had purchased a relief, a fibreglass version of a bronze relief of Ted's head and Pike and Crow, which Leonard Baskin had made. And we also had a pencil sketch, a lovely, no, charcoal drawing of Hughes by Baskin. Um, and then, of course, um, I think we had, too, his Cambridge diary, which is fascinating, his loose-leaf heifer's diary. Um, but that was about it, in addition, of course, to his undergraduate file. And so it was as a result of my growing interest in this that the collection began to grow. On my first visit to Barry Cook in Ireland, and Barry had been, um, clearly by that point, I'd read enough of the fishing diaries to know um, that he was an important figure. And I had seen Aidan Dunn's book on Barry Cook uh, with black and white facsimiles of uh, some of the images from the Great Irish Pike and a facsimile of the poem itself in Ted's handwriting. When I went to visit Barry Cook at his home in County Sligo in May 2012, I asked him about this and he kind of disappeared into his studio, leaving me in his house across the yard. And about half an hour had went by and I began to be a bit concerned because Barry about that point was kind of 80, 81. And I knocked on the studio door and he said, oh, come in, come in, I need your help. And he had a plan chest and pulled out what turned out to be artist proofs of the Great Irish Pike, which were magnificent, took my breath away, their scale and their beauty. Um, and I said to him, God, these are amazing. And then I wonder whether it would be possible if I could talk to the college, whether you might consider just selling us these. And he said, well, I, you couldn't afford them. They'd be far too expensive. Later that summer, I relayed this to Carol Hughes, who very generously indeed offered to donate a set, number 13 of 25 um copies of the of, of the suite of images with the poem and so that was really the start of it thanks to carol hughes's generosity thereafter and in the process of um researching the book i met roy davids who had become a very close friend of ted's and um spent i think i know from what roy has told me spent a number of christmases at court green initially having met Ted, um, to help manage the sale of um, Sylvia Plast papers to Smith. They had even fished together. And it was a poem of Roy's that I read about um, the river and Ted beside it that led me to contact him. And Roy came and visited me in Pembroke and just spoke passionately for about seven hours. It was extraordinary, all afternoon and then over dinner. Subsequently to that, when he um, he had been head of manuscripts at Sotheby's, he was then an independent rare book and manuscript stealer, and he had 
what turned out to be two sales of his collection. And at the first of these, we raised money from the Friends of the National Libraries and I think the National Heritage uh, Memorial Fund to buy the earliest known manuscript, which Roy had told me about, of Go Fishing. And Roy um, gave us um, some of his money to put towards a bid for a manuscript made in 1990 of The Thought Fox, which, of course, is relevant to what I then found out about where the bedroom, which had been 40 years later, my first study in Pembroke, where Ted dreamed of The Thought Fox. Um, so we got acquired that. Roy also then gave us two unpublished manuscript poems about fishing, which Ted had written for Conrad Vosbark, his friend, the um, angling correspondent and formerly parliamentary correspondent for The Times, who lived at Lifton in Devon because his wife Anne ran the Arundel Arms Hotel. And she edited their West Country Fly Fishing, the book of essays to which both Conrad and Ted contributed essays. So that started things off. We were approached by Peter Edwards, Oswestry-based artist who um, in 1993 had been at the unveiling by Ted of a memorial plaque to Wilfred Owen, child of Oswestry, um, on the centenary of um, Owen's birth. And Peter had taken a photograph of Ted and then I think sought his permission to use the photograph as the basis for a portrait. And um, Roy had acquired that portrait it was the front cover of the Bonhams catalogue of work which Roy offered for sale. Um, and uh, it was a very fine portrait. And after the sale, and we had not bid for it, Peter contacted the college and said, whenever he does a portrait, he does two. And he had retained one. And would we like to acquire that? So we acquired that. And that now hangs over the master's chair at High Table in Pembroke. So... We, that, that was how we started, really. I um, acquired from uh, Keith Sagar a, a, a fair copy manuscript of Strangers, a sea trout poem. So there's a kind of fishy theme here, um, but also a theme developing of friendships, actually, that kind of conversations with critics, friends, with, you know, Anne Skay, obviously, very close friend. She spent some time here as a as a visiting scholar. She has donated um, her collection of, of some of her, of her papers about Ted and her own work. It's, it's Olwyn had Olwyn Hughes had um, given us via Keith a collection of her papers of ephemera related to Ted's career, having served as his agent, obviously, and um, and publisher at the Rainbow Press. Some donations. Some, when they came up for public auction as a result of application to various national funding bodies to help us bid for, because we don't, as a, a college, have a, a, an acquisitions budget. So the collection began to grow. It turned out that Roy had not offered for sale, not included in his first sale, some really very precious material, including a collection of about 120 books by or edited by Ted, which Ted in their friendship had personally inscribed for him. And the inscriptions are sometimes uh, very comic, 
light, sometimes rhyme, sometimes very profound. And they he had clearly spent an inordinate amount of time and energy getting those inscriptions right. So that came up at a subsequent sale of Roy's, by which point he, alas, had, had suffered a stroke. Um, and it came up alongside a collection of poems, manuscript poems and letters that Ted had written to, to Roy. That was a separate um, item. And we sought national funding to enable us to bid for both of those. And uh, I remember agonizingly were pipped by, uh, I think it was by Emery, um, for the collection of manuscript material, but managed to acquire the collection of, of, of books inscribed by Ted to Roy. And then another sale when Frieda offered by Bonhams, an extraordinary collection, really amazing collection of her parents' uh, writing and furniture. Amongst those, one item caught my eye and heart, and that was a copy of what was, I think, Ted's first fine press edition of Animal Poems in 1967, which had been printed in a very unusual way to allow him to inscribe manuscript text on the facing page to the printed text. And he had, for this particular copy, clearly been on the verge of selling it in, I think, September 1971. He'd signed it, dated it, but then had not sold it or had acquired it back because in Christmas 1980, he gave this as a Christmas present to, to his son, Nicholas. And remarkably, it contained, in addition to manuscript text facing page of an otter and pike, so the two river-based, water-based, rather, um, poems at the head of this collection, it also had an additional nine poems in manuscript, none of which had been then published, um, many of which were in river, um, including a dated July 1980, the first, I think, known fair copy manuscript text of that morning. Um, and having chosen that morning, ten been back in 2000 for the stained glass windows, it was amazing to be able to reunite the stained glass window with the, the early November. And, and other poems which one for Norman McKay calling, called, or subsequently for Norman McKay, called A Trout, question mark, poems about fishing on pike fishing on Dartmoor which it, anyway we acquired that amazingly with help from friends of the National Libraries and National Heritage Memorial Fund and then the day after that sale Bonhams contacted us to say Ted's remarkable planked desk with fire charring on the support heavily ink stain and his high backed writing chair had not reached their reserve. Um, and would we be interested in making an offer? And we had run out of money, and I couldn't at that speed ask anyone else, so we did some crowdfunding and acquired it that way. So we now have, a, because we, we were also, were we interested in Ted's typewriter? But typewriter was what Ted used to write his criticism on. But um, I thought, actually, that we couldn't raise that kind of money for, for both of them. But it was more important, if we could, to have the ink-stained desk at which 
I know he wrote many of the poems, both in that book, Animal Poems, and many of his poems for many, for many years, from, I think, the 60s through to the early 1990s, when his writing hut had a renovation. Having met Barry in Sligo in 2012, I then met at the suggestion of Terry Gifford and Neil Roberts, senior Hughes scholars. I wrote to Olwyn, told her that I was working on Ted and Fishing. She was very encouraging and invited me to go and see her. So I went and saw her. And among gifts that she gave to me personally was also a stuffed trout, a battered stuffed trout, which Barry Cook had brought over in the hope of persuading a Devon publican to swap it for a beautiful carved salmon that he'd seen over the pub mantelpiece. And the publican had said, clear off, because this is a pretty scabby Loch Con trout at the best of times, I think. And anyway, Olwyn had um, received it, I think, many years later. And I, geez, I was, had arranged to go and see Barry on my way to give a paper at a Hughes conference in Connemara at Dunregan, where Ted and, and Asia and the children had spent six weeks in 1966, and whose current occupants want to celebrate Ted's presence in the Connemara landscape, which is vivid. And she said, oh, well, if you're going to see Barry, then return this trout to him. So by this point, Barry had moved southeast quite a long way from northwest Ireland in County Sligo to County Kilkenny. He was living in a village called Gregna Manor. His handwriting was a bit shaky. And when I wrote to confirm that I was coming, I got a letter back from his daughter, Julia, also living in Gregna Manor, and said, just come and see me first, please. Maybe you could deliver the trout to me. And I arrived there one evening and she welcomed me, took the trout, said that her dad was then living in uh, warden control, but kind of independent living uh, in the village, and that he had lost his short-term memory, uh, was developing dementia, which is why he'd come back to being close to the family. And he may not remember because of this that I was going to visit him the next morning. And she also said, and of course, he's lost the letters. And I said, what letters? Oh, lots of letters from his poet friends. And I knew that Barry and Ted had written to each other because some of Barry's letters, Ted's letters, amazing letters to Barry about Alaska and about uh, Kenya in 1983 are in, or portions of them are in Christopher Reed's selected letters but she rang him and said oh yes I want to see Mark could I come around the next morning and I and I read to him I went got there he couldn't remember the day of the week clearly he inscribed two books of his paintings for me that needed reminding of my name and the date but I read to him this 200 line verse fishing diary of Ted traveling over to uh, County Kilkenny on the River Nore in February 1980, because there was a run of salmon. When I finished this first diary, he said, would you like to see the letters? And he just pulled this cardboard box, which was full of leaks, from behind this curtained off, curtain recess, a cubby hole. And there it was stuffed with letters from Seamus Heaney and Robert Lowell and Paul Muldoon and lots by Ted. 
And that was extraordinary. And I reported the fact to Julia that, don't worry, these letters were safe. Um, and re- that was in 2013, really thought not that much more of it, except that there were various views amongst Barry's three daughters as to whether this collection should be sold off letter by letter or poet by poet, correspondent by correspondent, or kept together. And I did say, look, for what it's worth, I think this is a kind of collection that should remain together because its integrity is in the person who was written to, the recipient of all these letters. I was asked, could, by the daughters, could I um, introduce them to a valuer? And I, we have worked with Joan Wintercorn, wonderful, Dwayne of British valuing, she's actually American, lives in Cambridge, so I put them in touch. And again, thought nothing of it, but Joan went with, um, I think, Lyrdon and Julia back to Barry's house, found more letters and poems sent to Barry over the years, and found in total 150 paintings, monotypes, drawings that Barry notes on Crow, the collection, illustrations of the, the cladder recording of Crow, which Ted made. And, and then, amazingly, we were given the chance to bid for this collection. So then it was, by that point, the usual very generous suspects of Friends of the National Libraries, uh, the, the National Heritage and Memorial Fund, Old Possums Trust, other national, the Duke of Chatsworth's Fund, uh, and... Um, Olwyn very generously had left us a significant um, uh, bequest and with uh, the executor's uh, blessing we've used some of that towards this and then friends and alumni of the college when they saw highlights of this material I think my kind of passion for all of this persuaded them so we raised the money to bring that to to Pembroke. So that's the kind of, that's where we're at. And then, or not quite then, there was one letter, only one letter by Barry to Seamus Heaney in this collection in response to a hitherto unknown outside the Heaney family children's story, Ronan and the Riverman. And it's a wonderful story, which he sent to Barry, hoping that Barry would provide illustrations one per paragraph, of the creatures in this story, including pike, salmon, trout. And Barry did this. He took took a while doing it, took the story with him on his annual pilgrimage to catch trout during the Mayfly fortnight and wrote this letter from there saying what a wonderful story it was and then thinking about how it worked and sketching these proposed illustrations. But then at the climax of the story, got carried away and rewrote the climax in his own language, um, which is probably something he realised he shouldn't do. And for anyway, that he never sent the letter. So it never the illustrations never went to Faber, neither did the story. So it's a story that has been in the Heaney family. But it's a beautiful story. And as a result of all of this and a guest book, led me to contact, find and contact the various eminent artists and writers when they were still alive, included in that guest book. And one of them, Paul Moss, now one of Ireland's leading abstract artists and sculptors, a really extraordinary guy, deep friend of Barry, 
donated all of Barry's wonderful letters to him and Sonia's letters to him too, because Sonia died in 2019. So that, that's a combination of acquisition and donation. But it's all really united by friendship, to be honest, and quite a lot of it united by fish. Um, we, have, we have, in addition to this, and this is on long-term loan, I should say, um, many of the original illustrations, correspondence, and then artwork for the publication of his children's stories, The Iron Man, um, uh, which George Adamson illustrated, and George Adamson also illustrated Meet My Folks before that, and How the Whale Became. They're amazing collections, and John Adamson, um, George's son, who's himself a very significant um, art historian and publisher, publisher of art history, he has deposited those with us. And they're a fascinating insight into Ted's collaborations. So we've got George Adamson, we've got Baskin represented, um, and we have a huge, and upstairs from our, our basement archive, we've got a wonderful collection of, Leonard, of, of, of art history books by um, a Pembroke um, alumnus, Tom Rosenthal, an art publisher. Um, so Baskin's well represented there. Um, and George Adamson, Baskin and Barry Cook. It's a really fascinating um, example of collaboration. The other major piece of um, a major and beautiful object and text that we have on loan um, is as a result of um, my brother Julian and his wife uh, Fiona's growing interest in Hughes as they've seen me get completely obsessed uh, about all of this. And they they saw uh, an edition of the 1975 Scholar Press Cave Birds, the one with huge Baskin illustrations, facsimiles of Ted's notebooks, versions of the poems, and printed versions of the poems. And it used to belong to the owner, the runner of um, the Scholar Press, his cat, has left its claw marks on the covering of the box. But it's a really amazing edition, a really beautiful object. I hope scholars, researchers, students will come and look at all of this because it's amazing, beautiful material, as well as of the highest literary quality.